if we can be really mindful of that and then be knowledgeable about how to manage our emotions and then be able to increase and strengthen our social skills, be able to see asking for help around these issues is not a weakness, it's a capacity, it's a strength, then we can really start to have much more authentic control over our lives. We are seeing conflict move so quickly to chaos these days. Anger, entitlement, self-preservation can kick into overdrive when you feel devalued. We forget about relationships and fight to be right, no matter the cost. Civility is pushed aside more and more as we navigate our differences. There are a lot of stories and pain behind the devolving public discourse we're seeing today. My training and work remind me it is hard to show dignity if our own inerrant worth and value have been denied. The wounds of relational trauma, betrayal, neglect, poverty, racism are all playing out in so many spaces of public gatherings and personal relationships. School board meetings devolve into screaming matches with physical threats. Peaceful protests have become tinderboxes of divisiveness and violence. Wearing a mask in the grocery store feels like putting a target on your back instead of an act of respect and care. Partner violence and gun violence are at record highs. It is all infuriating. It's heartbreaking. It's exhausting. But now is not the time to throw our hands up and walk away from this messy state of affairs. We need to stay engaged and stay well in the process of staying engaged. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. When you lead from a principle of dignity, You value individual and collective human experiences, but not at the expense of the inerrant worth of every other person. This means we need to truly listen to those with whom we disagree. Like, really listen without preparing your next response or just tuning out. But discourse in a lot of spaces has devolved and become a full contact sport. You see this at the grocery store, at our schools our places of work and worship. Now, I know it is so easy to get hooked and dysregulated these days. I am feeling it too. There is a lot happening right now that takes us out of our space of leading from confidence, clarity, and calm. We are all human, and when you care deeply, it is inevitable our emotions will overwhelm us at some point. But it's also essential we cultivate spaces together that encourage conflict that moves us towards solutions, not sensational sound bites. So this takes work by looking at how we communicate and the language we use. And it also takes intention by setting expectations and guidelines of what is okay and what is not okay. And it also takes dignity, which means doing the deep inner work so we can show up and lead by facing our biases and recognizing the inerrant worth of every person instead of seeing our rights above this human responsibility. Now, today's guest really got me thinking about the importance of the power of our own healing as a foundation of creating and sustaining cultures of dignity right now. From where we learn to where we work, Rosalind Wiseman fosters civil dialogue and inspires communities to build strength, courage, and purpose. She is the founder of Cultures of Dignity, an organization that shifts the way communities think about our physical and emotional well-being by working in close partnership with the experts of those communities, young people, educators, policymakers, and business and political leaders. She is the author of New York Times bestseller, one of which is Queen Bees and Wannabes, helping your daughters survive cliques, gossip, boyfriends, and the new realities of girl world. This is a groundbreaking best-selling book that was the basis for the movie and the Broadway musical Mean Girls. She's been profiled in the New York Times, People, Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, USA Today, and is a frequent guest on national media like the Today Show, CNN, and NPR affiliates throughout the country. 
Listen to how Rosalind unpacks the principles that guide her company, especially what she said around dignity and listening. It has made a lasting impact on me and my work for sure. And also pay attention to where we talk about debating and what winning really looks like and does not look like. And lastly, notice Rosalind's approach to empowering people with their rights and also the skills to manage the responsibilities of those rights. This is such a timely point. Now, please welcome Rosalind Wiseman to the Unburdened Leader podcast. I mean, this whole critical race theory stuff is so, so predictable and frustrating. Mm. And it's so connected and it reminds me so much of, and it, for good reason, it reminds me a lot of, for as long as I've been doing this work, like, you know, you can't talk about sexual, like I, when I first started doing the work I do, I remember going into a public school administrator and her saying to me, you can't use the word sexual harassment when you're talking about sexual harassment in school. And so I said, I mean, I was like 23 and I said, so and I, I don't think I meant it like sarcastically. I said, like, so you're saying that kids can sexually harass each other, but they can't talk about it and about what the problem is. And she said, yes, we can't do that. And that's basically what's happening with critical race theory, right? It's like people who are saying you can't, you, like, if you talk about this, you're accusing people of doing whatever, all this stuff, right? And not that it's even been taught in schools anyway, but it's like you just... It's just this thing that's just the galvanization of people who don't want to, who don't want to actually change the way things are in the systems of power. And so if it's sexual assault or sexual harassment, or it's a, you know, it's racism or it's homophobia, you know, it's like, okay, now we're going to we're going to like dismiss it by saying things are woke. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm so used to these cycles that anytime we really try and talk about things seriously, then there's this enormous systemic pressure to silence it. That's what I'm, so yeah. And then if we don't talk about pornography and like kids, you know, kids watching pornography or seeing pornography, I think, you know, average age is like 10 and people won't let us talk about it. Right. My, my colleague, Peggy Ornstein, my friend and colleague, Peggy. Oh yeah. I know Peggy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I love Peggy and her books, you know, boys and sex and girls and sex, which I have right back there. And yeah, some teachers who, you know, she wrote to me recently and she's like, can you freaking believe that there are teachers who want to teach this and are not, and parents are not letting them because right. But I mean, it's just like, what are you talking about? So I don't know the answer to your question. (laughs) It's my, yeah. So much fear and scarcity. Uh, Yeah. But what I'm hearing from you and then, and then I'll jump in and do the intro and we can go into the questions, but what I'm hearing for you is that the issues and are the same. It's just the catalyst to bringing people to you might be CRT or Black Lives Matter or how to navigate sexual, you know, harassment or microaggressions. It's, there's all these things, but the it's still the fear of how do we talk about and, and the uncertainty of how do we talk about these things and how yeah. do we help well, our kids? There's more permission. I mean, we can talk about this, but I think there is more permission to be able to talk to be able. There is definitely more permission for adults to have self-righteous temper tantrums. You're listening to The Unburdened Leader. And y'all, I am really, really excited to introduce you to my guest today, Rosalind Wiseman, who I have been following for almost two decades. It is such a treat to have you here, Rosalind. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Rebecca, for having me. Thanks for you know wanting to hear what I'm saying for the last 20 years. Well, your information, what you put out in the world has been consistent it has been solid and you have been faithful in your message. And, and again, good stuff lasts the test of time. So really, really grateful to dig in today. There's a lot I want to talk to you about. And a lot I know the listeners uh, to this podcast will really benefit from. But first, I just want to talk a little bit at a high level about your company, Cultures of Dignity. Now, you work with schools, parents and leaders to transform how they view, support and lead young people. I'd love for you to walk us through what a culture of dignity looks like. And I'm laughing a little bit, kind of in light of everything going on in our world at the time of recording this. But what is a culture of dignity? What does it look like today amidst a deeply polarized culture? Yeah, it's hard to imagine that we can have one, right? That we can have a culture of dignity. And that can be, I think, for a lot of people, really overwhelming and and just put your head down and try and get through the day. So a culture of dignity really for me is based on principles and principles guide 
thoughts, and actions. That's how I define principles. That's how principles are often defined, as they guide thoughts and actions. And principles are a constant reminder of how you conduct yourself. So there's a million different problems or iterations of conflicts that you can get into. We can never know exactly what specific problem we're going to have to handle. But if we have a principle, and specifically a principle of dignity, which is to recognize the inherent worth of every person, that that's just a given that that's your, that's your guardrails. That's your like that. If that, if that's what you remember to guide your thoughts and your actions in your everyday situations, then it helps you be able to show up and be flexible um, and be able to manage what happens as you go through the inevitable conflicts and the inevitable challenges and struggles that you have. And then for me and our, you know, this company that I have called cultures of dignity is that we start with dignity and the inherent worth of every, of each person, but then we distill it so it's more tangible. So hmm. I'll give you like a couple of things, which is we define listening. This is a, we have a principle of listening connected to dignity and listening. The way we define it is being prepared to be changed by what you hear. Hmm. And you know, another one very connected to the question you asked me in this very deeply polarized question, culture we live in. So listening like that is very important in contrast to listening so that you, the other person takes a breath and you can tell them exactly why they're wrong, which is how we, our culture is um, operating now. And then the other prin- principle within that dignity principle is be easy on people and hard on ideas. Ooh, 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 wait, wait. Can you just say that again? Yeah, be easy on people and hard on ideas. Gosh, because we sure conflate people and ideas, don't we? Oh, we do. And what we often do, frankly, is we are really hard on people. And because we're so hard on people, it distracts us from actually being hard and rigorous on the ideas that we need to be able to deal with so that we can solve some of the problems that we have. But we're so busy being so angry at people and assuming the worst about them and their intent and their competency and all of this that we really, it really stops our brains from individually and collectively being able to even begin to solve the very significant challenges that we have. So for me, you know, in answer, when you're asking me that question, those two sort of sub principles, you know, we have this big principle of dignity that everyone is inherently worthy. But then within that, we get a little bit, we get more specific. And those two principles are really important to me to create a culture of dignity. You know, it's interesting because I'm thinking about my first job out of college was working in the United States Senate in D.C. And so one of the cool things about being in that environment at such a young age was being in constant debate discussion. And I learned early on that I would either walk away feeling stronger about what I believed or questioning what I believed. And both are good. Like I would test my ideas and it was so energizing to have these sometimes impassioned debates with people I cared about, respected. Sometimes I didn't know them well, but I had admired them from afar. And we came together and had these conversations. And I always want, it was a walk away with the wind going, okay, I'm hungering on more where I believe because of this conversation or, ooh, I need to rethink this stat. And that's a gift too. But there was the humanity and the humanizing of someone. The dignity was still there when I was there, at least in the circles I was in. I know DC has has struggled with that and the culture of politics has struggled <laughs> well, with dignity. I'm, yes. for I'm a while, from there. But, yes. I'm a oh, native so Washingtonian. So I, and I was a Senate page actually when I was in high school. But oh. and I know what you're talking about. The thing is that, you know, when I work with a lot of high school people, and one of the things that we talk I talk to them a lot about is that there's a difference between the wonderful way in which you just described debate versus that we now, and I think this also connects to people's privilege and their socioeconomic status a lot, is that you feel that if you, that when you're talking to somebody that you, the only way to win is by, the only way to win, the only way to be in a debate is to win by dominating the other person. Power over, yeah. And so what I've said to young people a lot in those situations is when you walk away from a debate feeling that you have won, that you have, you have dominated the other person, that is actually the indicator that you have lost. Because now in this culture, when you walk away from that, the other person does not necessarily agree with you or isn't thinking the way that you're describing, thinking about things in a different way. 
they're just walking away either reinforced with what they believe or and also just feeling dominated. And that's not a way for anyone to begin to think about something differently. So I right. recast that for young people a lot because of the culture that we live in. Yeah. And there's no relationship to circle back to versus these other conversations I still have, you know, gosh, it was there in mid nineties. So, you know, I'm still in conversation with folks where we have a lot of different views on how we'd see change, but we have a relationship and we still check in with each other. And that I, I see just diminishing so much. So I'm curious how you would describe how your approach is different than conventional wisdom on leading youth these days and helping youth and those who care for youth? Yeah. So one of the things that I, I believe is different and it's hard for me to understand why this is so different is that <laughs> I don't do anything with that, with young, for young people or about young people without asking them first. Yes. And without, oh. and I, and I've said in my own circles of, you know, of, you know, people who have a tremendous amount of expertise and knowledge on issues of education and young people and, you know, just trying to have a person think about things in a different way. You know, I, I have said I have I have defined young people as the subject matter experts of their lives. And I've gotten pushback. Yes. When I've gotten pushback from my oh, colleagues about that. What's the pushback? Tell me more about this. Oh well, my gosh. It, that young people are not necessarily the subject matter experts of their lives because they are young and that people who've been doing the work on young people are the experts. And I think that while like, for example, I've been doing my work and I, the way I say it, like I was just talking to a group of eighth and ninth grade boys and I said to them, you know, I have a lot of experience working with your age people. I do. I've, I have two decades of experience working with eighth and ninth grade boys, but I don't know what it's like to be you. And I've never been an eighth and ninth grade boy. And I sure have never been an eighth or ninth grade boy or person growing up today. So I have a lot of expertise. I'm not taking away the expertise that I have by acknowledging the expertise and wisdom that young people have. And I think that's really the only way that we're going to get young people to basically buy what we're selling because it's a joke. Like, unfortunately, the work that I do in social emotional learning, and you can call it like, you know, in the 90s, it was like character development or anything around like how to be as a person or the decisions that one makes in life. And they often are laughed at by young people. And the reason that they're laughed at is because they're unrealistic, because we don't ask young people to create the context in which we're going to give them this information. So I can give them a lot of information, but it has to be in the context in which they're living. And the only way that I can understand the context or frame it is if I ask them what that context is and take it seriously. And I think that conventional wisdom around things when we talk to young people about things like kindness campaigns or anti-bullying things or social media campaigns or anything to do with their lives is we don't ask them what it's yeah. like and we don't work with them as as the people who have knowledge about this. And as long as we continue to do that, we're going to have, you know, buttons and things on walls in schools that, you know, young people just won't take seriously. Yeah, there's an investment when someone says, tell me about you. And, and it's so interesting. Now I know why I followed you for so long. We're so aligned because whenever I sit and meet with someone, I say, listen, I may have all these nerdy certifications and know all these theories. And I see patterns of people I've worked with over the last couple of decades, but I'm not an expert on you. And so we're going to come together and, and, and work on these things. I don't know more about you than you do. And, but we, and I think that is interesting how if from a leadership perspective, if we're continually diminishing the lived experience of a young person, they're going to grow up and do that too. Sure. But absolutely. if they have, yeah, but if they feel that they're valued and seen and heard, they're going to model that too. So I guess that, that leads to my next question of, and this is maybe a little leading here, but what is the connection between how we treat and lead young people and how we treat and lead adults? I'd love to have you unpack sure. that a little bit further. Sure, sure. So you know, what's also funny is that because I, I work because in my work with young people, there's this there's it's not like they're they are not um, immune to doing it themselves. Right. So you can have a senior <laughs> who will talk really patronizingly to a freshman, to a ninth grader. For sure. All right. For and sure. then I'll have to. And then my job is to say, hey, let's take a pause here for a moment. And so when you say, you know, when I was a freshman, I didn't dress like that or what they're not, you know, those kinds of things. 
we need to take a st- like time to take a step back, laugh and say, wow, you know what? And so to your point, I am doing the things that I was taught how to do. And so becoming an adult is really often, I think, about being able to manage yourself and to be self-reflective and be able to know that if you take a pause and that you are able to have a moment of understanding how you might be coming across to someone. And even if you aren't sure that you're able to say, Hey, wait a minute, am I coming across this way? Like I have a feeling that I'm doing something that might be like counterproductive to what we, what I'm trying to do here. And that you're able to listen to that and not, you know, get offended or not think your, you know, your position of authority is being questioned, but it, that it makes it so that you are able to have a much better conversation and communication with that person. If you can do that, then you can, you know, even if you've been, you've had that kind of role modeling, you can change that in the moment. And, and that's also another thing that I do with young people a lot, but they, but, and I mean, it's funny that uh, if you put them in a position of authority and leadership, they just like what you're saying, they can start to model some of the things that are not helpful that they grew up with. So, you know, I think that, you know, just to drill down a little bit more into your question, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of adults who feel powerless and often felt like they're being treated like children by other adults who are in positions of authority, like told what to do, how to do it, like, you know, feeling like you're going to be punished if you don't do acts, like in work environments, you know, reporting when things are going wrong, like you don't know how to do that because it feels like you're snitching, you're going to get in trouble. Or if you're frustrated with some, with your boss, like you're worried about being able to say anything because you're going to somehow get punished about that. And those are all things that we've learned from in the past. And it's not just about power dynamics. It's about our lack of social skills, being able to manage our own emotions and that emotions, and then be able to communicate that effectively with others. And so I think that if we can be really mindful of that and then be knowledgeable about how to manage our emotions and then be able to increase and strengthen our social skills, be able to see asking for help around these issues is not a, is not a weakness, it's a capacity, it's a strength, then we can really start to have much more authentic control over our lives. And so to loop back to your question, when we do that with young people, they move forward in conversations or engage in conversations that they really don't, for a very good reason, want nothing to do with, right? Like of like bullying or social media and social media use. Kids hate talking about that stuff. Usually when we talk about it and recalibrate the way I've talked about, they want to move very quickly towards okay. having those conversations. So we touched a little bit on this already because since I just found out you grew up in the DC area, but you write and teach about the importance of navigating politics with dignity. And, and that's something that's dear to my heart. And, and, and for me, I, I lived on Capitol Hill. As I noted, I worked on Capitol Hill. It's, it's such a big part of my life. So with January 6th still fresh in my mind and the minds of so many, but also I've been watching some of these school board meetings, even here in San Diego last week, we had one that went national because it just devolving into screaming and dehumanizing and even threats of violence. And I'm just, you know, I've got kids going to school. I've got my husband who works in a school system. And I'm thinking, hmm, paying attention to this. And and like you said, that adults are less worried uh, about how they express their anger and their power over. So what are the biggest barriers right now to cultivating cultures of dignity? Well, so it's really easy to clickbait on those videos where we watch adults lose their minds and have temp- temper tantrums at school board meetings and you know be horrified and have an emotional response to it be horrified for sure for be, sure you know but we are clickbaited into watching them and that's Fair. To hold, right Fair. that's to hold our attention and then of course You're right. see like the ad right next to the video um mm. I would ask people before you see that and before you see anything like that, that you're going to to know that you're going to be your emotions and your body is going to be physiologically stimulated in a negative way when you see things like that. I'm thinking about this and I'm in in debate about this myself because I work in school systems and I am working with school board people and have done for a very long time. And it was a very difficult job before the last 18 months and and then I see people acting out and these people are so dysregulated, you know, so there is yeah. no reason, no matter how yep. important you think 
your agenda is. There is no reason except to be completely emotionally dysregulated, to get up and threaten people and to be behaving in these ways. And, you know, I am a parent and I can unequivocally say that it is one of the more upsetting things and one of the most damaging things in our country is that parents across the board, across political spectrums, across their, their opinions about things and who they vote for, that there's always a small group of people who think that they are absolutely justified in behaving in atrocious ways to be able to say what they want, get what they want, do what they want. And parenting never gives you a pass to be a self-righteous nasty person. I I don't care how important you think your issue is. And I don't care who you vote for. It is, you could vote like me a hundred percent of the time, which I've seen many parents who I'm like, oh yeah, those people vote just like I do. And they are atrociously behaving to other people. So this is really, this is really agnostic in the way of like who this goes (laughs) to. Um, because I think we also tend to think like, oh, that person who disagrees with me is behaving poorly. Well, guess what? People that who think like you do behave can behave just as poorly as you do. So as the other as the other side, excuse me. So I think we need to a acknowledge that. B, we have to say parenting does not give you an excuse to um, act in a self righteous, nasty way. And C, when our children see this, in, and and I really want us to be clear that children are seeing this. And that mm-hmm. is very scary and anxiety producing for them when they see people at school boards and these clickbait things and people are talking about it. It is, ter- it is terrifying and anxiety producing for them to have to go to school on top of everything else, knowing that the, the adults in their lives are so dysregulated and can't be relied on to act like adults. And that is very unsettling for young people. And so what I would like people who are listening to this is to be able to really beg you is it's very scary to face how we all have learned how to deal with conflict in our lives. Very few of us have been raised and know how to handle conflict well or to be in the presence of somebody who is so angry. But for our community's sake, survival, for our children's emotional safety, psychological safety, their ability to go to school, we have to get better at being able to be in the presence of people who are having self-righteous temper tantrums and be able to say that is not the way we are going to conduct ourselves. And so we just really, for the sake of our communities, from our smallest to our largest, we really have to be able to strengthen our abilities and face some of the things that, frankly, many of us, it's really, really scary. Whatever you're passionate about, how you communicate is the issue. Yes. I, I'm also listening to this going, oh my gosh, I've been really having a lot of information boundaries just on my mm, own nervous so system. So smart. But what I'm really, even hearing, watching these school board meetings, I realized why it, it hit me so hard because I grew up in a home that had a lot of that energy. And so I'm like, oh, okay. Why? I'm like, why is this stuff hitting me a little differently? I'm like, oh, it's hitting close to home for me. So, so here's just a nuanced follow-up question then. So for those that are regulated, because a lot of people like in, you know, I'm in a lot of circles that are trauma-informed and do trauma work. I've been doing trauma work for 20 years, both clinically, clinically for 20 years and for the last five years doing trauma-informed leadership work. I can have compassion for how people got there to January 6th, to these school means I, I can sit there and go, okay, I know the what's and the why's. And yet I'm not seeing anyone say what you just said, saying, hey, this isn't okay here. You, I want to hear you, your voice matters, but not this way. Yeah. So how can we lead dysregulated people? Mm. What do we as leaders need to do in those moments so that you don't have people escorted out of a school board meeting just because they're wearing a doctor's jacket or they hold a certain title and they're voting in a different way? Like, yeah, we. I feel like this is what I said to my husband about what's going on in his school. I said, unequivocally, leadership has to say from the top, this is okay and this is not okay. And we are working on enforcing this. Like yeah. leadership has to say this. So what... Yeah. Would you want leaders to communicate when those kind of situations are happening? Yeah. Well, and I also think that just to also be clear that people who are mostly regulated have dysregulated moments. And I Hello. think, right, exactly. Human, so, right, human moments. <laughs> right. So I think it's important. Right. So, and I think if we can also, in some ways we we can, and the same is true. It gives us optimism towards people who are like, oh my gosh, they have lost their minds right now that you, mm-hmm. so both are true, right? You have people who are regulated, who have dysregulated moments and people who are dysregulated yes. who can get to a better place. So 
You got it. it. I think that's an important level set. But so when we're in moments of this kind of, as my mother would say, upset, my mother, my mother uses the word upset. (laughs) You're um, upset. She do air quotes. Upset. upset. (laughs) In moments of upset that, but the first thing to do, I, I always do is check in with myself about, I always do that about like, oh, here I am. Wow, this is an awful moment. Really don't want to be here. I wish I could be anywhere else. I think it's really important to acknowledge if you're having these feelings of, oh God, why did I come to this meeting? Or why did I decide to become a parent? Or why <laughs> did I, like, why, why, why does it have to be? Why did I take this job? Right, right, right. right like, now. why? I don't yeah. want to do this. Like, this is awful. Like, oh, like, why do I have a friend who's why do I have to talk to my friend who's got this opinion that's really different than me and is being really difficult and I don't know what to say. So I think that's the first step. The second step is, and I really agree with you that leaders have to say, and not in these kinds of sound bitey ways, like, or they have to be very clear about in the kind of tone of, Hey, like you have the right to have the opinion you have and to be in this community and to yes. be able to speak what you want to speak. Yes. But, and this is where we go back to principles. This is why principles are so cool because, mm. because then you can say, and in order to be, and this is why it's, well, let me stop. Let me pause for a second. And in schools, one of the things that we do a lot is we set norms and expectations for what we're, how we're going to treat each other. And one of the things that I work on a lot in schools is that we co-create them with students, right? So students aren't being told how to behave. It's, how do we do this together? How do we create a learning yes. environment together? So it's co-creating. I love it. I so love it. In school board meetings, for example, there's they usually do have rules about here's the code of conduct now because parent because adults can't be counted on to maintain themselves and with a sense of you know base, basic decorum. But the principles are, and this is just why. And I'll go. So now I'm going back to. So when we have print dignity as the word of like everyone deserves to be treated with dignity, with inherent worth. And that is our starting place. And then what that means to me, what I mean, what that means in the norms of this, of this space is listening is being prepared to be changed by what we hear. We're going to be easy on people, you know, easy on people, hard on ideas. What is a conflict is inevitable. Collaboration is essential. Like if we have these things and, and then there is an agreement like when you come into a board meeting, I, this is what I would like to think what I would like people to think about is before you ne- we have gotten to such a low level of our behavior that I think we actually need to have a consent kind of thing happen where if you're going to join this school board meeting, you have to look at these principles, yes. you have to agree I to agree. them that you're going to conduct yourself this way. And if you are so upset about what's happening that you don't think you can conduct yourself in that manner, then you are, please leave for a few minutes until you get yourself under control. And then you can come back and join the group, which is exactly what, frankly, we talk to middle school people about. Yes. But but we have to now because adults can't manage themselves. So I think there needs to be principle based way in which we have meetings, but that people need to agree that if you're going to be in this meeting, regardless of what you think, you have to agree to the how of how you're going to conduct yourself. And you have to sign your name on it because your words are bond. That's the way our grandparents taught us. And so your words are bond. And if you can't, then someone needs to say to you, and this and this is like you've agreed to be as a part of this meeting, that you're going to conduct yourself in the following way. That's not happening. So why don't you excuse yourself for 10 minutes and then come back when you're ready? That is where we are. I think that's mm-hmm. how we, I think that's basically the way that we do it. Yeah. And I even think from a trauma-informed leadership perspective saying, and, and if you can't come back, then man, submit your words in writing. Totally. We'll have someone read it. We want to hear your voice. In our household, we say it's never okay to hurt yourself or others with your words or your fists. Yeah. And sure. it's just, it's, it's a family rule. And now our family meetings are now going to have norms and expectations as we look at the new school year. I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm bringing that in. Yeah. But I also love being hard on ideas, not on people, mm-hmm. right? Your dignity, your humanity is never on the table. Right. And never it's, we have to model that. I, and I think it starts with our kids. Honestly, I'm, I, I really am thinking if we start to have these kind of norms and expectations that are co-created and saying, it's because you matter. We want to hear you. Yeah. So I'm curious, just before we move on from this, what is your biggest barrier for you as you do this work? There's a lot. I was thinking about this, actually. And, you know, 
I get, <laughs> I get really frustrated. I've been doing this work for a long time and watching adults, you know, I can intellectually explain to myself why I think adults are behaving so poorly. Sure. And yet <laughs> it is still incredibly upsetting to me. And it upsets me for them and it upsets me because I work with young people and I am very intimate with the consequences of this adult yeah. behavior towards, you know, the impact of it on young people and, and the mental health issues and challenges that young people have. And, and so I'm, I'm very up close to all of that. And so that's really, really hard to see. And it's really hard to see the lack of dignity that people are treating each other with. You know, again, I've been thinking about these issues for a long time and like my entire career in some version or another. And it's really hard to see how respect and the word respect is continuously used as a way to actually really mean obey me, comply with what I'm saying, no matter, even if, or, or especially when I am not treating people with dignity, people in positions of authority, using that as a way to demand compliance and obedience. And when you don't, when you say you are not treating me with dignity, that person, in that position of authority uses that as a way to go after you, uses that as a way to say you're being disobedient, that you're being defiant. And that's just really, if we can pull apart those two words and use them for what they're really, what they really mean, dignity is the inherent worth of people and respect is admiring not only what someone, what someone has achieved, but how they have achieved it, then I think we can get to a much better place in our relationships and in our, and the health, the emotional safety of our, of our, and health, more to the point of our communities. And so watching that and watching how respect has been used and watching how people have been manipulated is just deeply, it's deeply, you know, just, it's just, it, it's very hard to keep doing this work. It doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. It just means that it's really, really hard. So I put myself, the obstacle, I try as I recognize that obstacle. And then I, I continuously, I give myself some compassion which has been an obstacle for me, just keep going, keep going, keep going, has been Mm. learning how to be self-compassionate has been a really important part of this. And to say, wow, I'm not feeling really motivated right now. And that's okay. Mm. So compassion. Yeah. Cause it sounds like there's a grief, a fatigue, and maybe even dancing with a little bit of burnout, maybe dancing with dancing with hopelessness, a little tinges of that, that show up when you are faced with the intensity of what yeah. We have particularly not just the last 18 months, but the last four years and beyond. Oh, yeah. Um, so thanks, I mean, thanks, for, yeah. thanks for naming that. Yeah, no. And I, you know, and then I go right back into it and then I watch myself go right back into it. And then I sort of laugh at myself <laughs> about because uh, right now I'm finishing up a book. I haven't written a book in mm. four or five years. Not, not, you know, I've written a lot of curricula. I've written a lot of articles, but I haven't written like a book. And I have a book coming out in May and I'm doing it with a colleague, of a dear friend and colleague of mine. And she's black and grew up and is a youth pastor and Christian. And I am none of those things. <laughs> and so we're doing this book together. And I'm it's it's, you know, compelling me to have really uncomfortable conversations, not only with myself and with her, but also with people that really disagree with me about things and about and that's you know just putting myself sort of okay, practice what you preach. You can't tell people to do these things if you're not gonna do them yourself. So Yes. I keep Word doing it. that. Keep doing it. Yeah. That's, that's where capacity and resilience are, are built. Yes. You got it. Yeah. You got it. But yeah. rest is big. But Resting rest a little bit longer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> why am I not lines. motivated today? Why do I want to do a lot of laundry? Oh, right. <laughs> tired. Because <laughs> I'm tired. Oh my gosh. I have like become obsessed with my garden of late because I'm like, I can control this. I've got life. I've got 22 tomato plants right now. In my hey, congratulations. <laughs> so I am like learning so much, but it's like this thing because I'm like, I got to get in the garden or laundry. I become obsessed with my laundry lately because I need, they're become my certainty anchors, Rosalind. Exactly. Going exactly. On. exactly. Wait, you mentioned a book, but I want to talk about the book that introduced me to you, which oh. is Queen Bees and Wannabes, which is now in its third edition. And you're so close to celebrating its 20th anniversary from its original publishing date. So I want to say congratulations to you. I'm yeah. curious what personal experience. <laughs> That's a long time. Jeez. Tell, okay. tell me about what personal experiences inspired mm-hmm. you to write Queen Bees and Wannabes. Yeah. So I didn't really have my personal experience that inspired me was 
that I was teaching at the time. And I was teaching a lot of, I was teaching a lot of girls and parents would ask me in all different kinds of ways, all different kinds of ways. They would ask me questions about their daughters. And I was so young. I was, when this was happening, I was in my late, my mid twenties, late twenties. And then I thought, I just need to write something. So these parents get it. Like, how come they don't get it? Which of course, you know, that's funny looking back on. And, and so I was like, all right. The hubris just, of the right, 20s. The hubris, yes, right. Yes. I'm just like, wait, what is going on here? So I wanted, so I really, the inspiration was that I wanted to write something so that I could explain what I was seeing to parents and which seemed really obvious to me. And it's not like I got everything, let's be clear, but I, I was really in conversation with girls all the time, all different ages, all different kinds of girls. And so I wanted to write a book that explained what I was seeing and how I was seeing it to parents. And that really was the reason. I mean, I, I had experiences in sixth and seventh grade that I revisited when I was teaching and when I was writing, but it wasn't the impetus for the book. It was it was actually a way as I was writing to self-reflect on what my experiences had been and get some wisdom on what those experiences were and how they impacted me as I got older and became an adult. Very similarly to what I was learning and listening and learning, learning from the girls. And so that really, that's really what the basis was, was yes. I wanted to share what the world looked like to me. And what were you seeing at the time that you wrote about in your book? Well, I've always very much been very focused on People have rights, but they have responsibilities. There, there are mm -hmm. themes to my work that have not changed, no matter how much, for example, social media changes. So balancing people's rights and responsibilities has been always been a really important one. And also, similarly, giving somebody, telling somebody they have a right to something does not mean that other people are going to respect those rights. So giving somebody a right, you also have to give them the skills to be able to put those into practice for themselves. But then they have the responsibility to, you know, to as much advocate for the rights of other people as what they are experiencing or what you hope that you would experience. So that, that was, that's been a, that was something I was seeing was that people at the time of a certain demographic, meaning white and middle-class and upper middle-class is that they were very focused on giving, on talking to girls about their rights and they weren't very much talking to them about how to like, what does that mean? Or how do you advocate for yourself? And girls of color and girls with less resources were not really for the most part, even in many communities of influence, were not even being talked about as, as being like they weren't, their voice was not at the table. So I was seeing that as well. And that's why from the very beginning with Queen Bees, I was bringing in issues of race and class into what I was seeing in girl world and how girls were valuing each other based on race and class and ethnicity and so, so all of those things. So, so I, I was seeing all of that and I was seeing that I think one of my biggest insights was is that girls' relationships in their groups was very much making them not establish boundaries for themselves and that they would take that lack of boundaries, that it was more important to maintain the friendship than to be able to have a, a good friendship that was a healthy friendship. It was more important to maintain it than how you were treated within that friendship, that that was carrying over as the girls got older into more complex relationships that they were getting into. And I think that was one of oh, my, sure. you know, one of my most important insights at a, you know, at a pretty young age, I had that insight into, Oh, these patterns are starting at 12, like really the friendship dynamics are with that things are happening at 10 and 11 and 12 are really impacting the way that girls are having their relationships later in life. Yeah. And, you know, noting that this book was written 20 years ago, right? What core content has stayed the same with the principles in Queen Bees and Wannabes? And what has evolved? You mentioned rights and responsibilities, any other core things that have stayed the same and what are some of the things that you've yeah. added to this? So book? some of the things that have stayed the same are, it was so, it just, I was just reminded of this yesterday. I was asking a group of uh, mostly seventh grade girls. Um, what did I need to know to work in their school on Monday? And what were they worried about? And, you know, with everything going on, God bless the seventh grade girls are like fitting in, getting along with my friends choosing or losing friendships. We talked a lot about choosing and losing friendships. They were not thinking about masks. They were thinking about like, how do I maintain my friendship? Got it. There's the popular group and how do I stay, you know, friends with them? 
So those kinds of things tend to be evergreen or having a betrayal and a friendship, being jealous of a friend, feeling insecure, falling in love, you know, who you are, all those things are evergreen, getting into uh, fights of in, about independence with your parents. Those are identity. Those, those are evergreen. What's different is how and is, is how. And also the feeling of, I mean, obviously when girls, when I first started, when Queen Bees first came out, there was something called privacy in the world. And there is no privacy now. And or it's very difficult. And young people will go to great lengths to try and figure out how to create privacy. So they, they can. It's just that it's really, really hard, obviously. And the way in which they understand their public persona versus their private persona, totally different than when I first started teaching. What does it mean to be famous? Totally different. And, and the desire for that, what does that look like? How you define close friendships is in some ways different because young people can and do have close friendships with people that they don't ever see in real life. So, so those things are different. It's, it's, so it's the how I think that's, that's really changed. And and that is why, that is why you have to listen to young people about what the context is in which they're living. So as a parent, Queen Bees is still helpful because it teaches you about like how to communicate with your child and how to listen to them and how not like don't ask them a million questions at the end of the day because it's exhausting. To them. <laughs> that will always be an evergreen issue. Always, 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 always. I could just keep writing Queen Bees and just keep updating it for our culture. But I felt like at a certain point I needed to put that I needed to put it to bed <laughs> and do other things. And, you know, like the book I'm writing right now. And I, you know, I'm doing the book on boys and stuff like that. Like I did that and I just, yeah. What's the title of that book again? I know. The boys book? The the boys book? Yeah. Yeah. That's called Masterminds and Wingmen. Great. So, and I'm wondering too, if maybe some of the things that came out of Queen Bees is also probably why you're wanting to move forward. And I want to get into that because this book inspired the movie and the musical Mean Girls, which is now part of the cultural zeitgeist of the time. I mean, it is a legend status movie in many ways. And you came back on my radar last spring when I heard you kind of talk about some deep disappointments and betrayals around the adaptation of Mean Girls into a movie and musical. And you wrote in your blog, I just want to read this quote that just it hit my heart. And you wrote, for me, Mean Girls has never been my greatest achievement. I am much more proud of the work I do advocating for young people and helping to bring dignity into communities. In reality, my Mean Girls experience was one based on exploitation. Whew. And so let's have a let them breathe for a moment. I'd love for you to share in what ways was your experience with the adaptation and, and production process not reflective of dignity? Yeah. Well, so the system of having a book be bought by a movie company and then that turned into a movie is in essence and at its base and one of exploitation. And you, because the movie Mm. companies will say any movie company will, you know, you take a risk when you are an author that um, because the movie company has all of the power and they have all the experience and you as an author for the most part don't. And so when you enter into that agreement, regardless of who it is, the relationship is one of exploitation. And I think that that to a certain extent, I understood that, but you also have to go through the experience to really understand that. And yeah. so the easiest way for people who don't know what I'm like, who don't have a lot of experience with this that I can explain it to you is, is that it's very common when you're an author that in your contract for a movie company, it says that you will get 3% of net pro- proceeds from the movie. And you think, well, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that risk. Like if the movie makes a hundred million dollars and it costs fifty, it costs fifty million to make, then somehow I should get some money from that. But that's never how it works. Ever, nobody ever, ever, ever makes money like that in in the film industry because they always figure out a way on the books to make it look like the movie never makes money. So. In Mean Girls, it costs $17 million to make, and then you double, this is what movie companies do all the time, then you double, whatever the movie budget is, you just double what the, basically for marketing and advertising. So it, it's it's 17 for making the movie, it's 17 for doing all the marketing. Well, Queen Bees, I mean, excuse me, Mean Girls has made, uh, conservatively, has made $150 million, but it's still on paper has not made money. And that's just how they do it. They just, you'll never make money. So 
Wow. Right. So on its base, that is that is the case. It's just the nature of the beast. And I understood it, but I just really felt you look at it and you're like, well, if it makes a hundred million dollars and it costs 17 to make, surely I will make some money from that. If from it, somehow it will make money. But that that's just not the way it goes. And so, but what's hard is what was really hard and what became very hard with the musical is that Tina Fey's really good at and has been really complimentary about, you know, my work and how I was the source material for it and the things that I do and all of that. And, you know, I, I believe that at a certain point when you're in a position of leadership in an industry and you talk about issues of women and equity and that you advocate that you don't just do that publicly and talk about it, but you actually do it in real life. Action. And that's not, that was not my experience. And the second part that was really difficult and really painful was that when the musical came out, I trained, I was worried about the cast. There's a couple of things, but I was worried that the cast, because I know the power of Mean Girls and what, and people love it so much. And they go to it with these experiences, sometimes of being bullied or children in the queer community, like have had experiences and somehow this, you know, just these, this Mean Girls has meant a lot for a lot of people. And, and they've had bad experiences and they, they, for some reason they've connected with, with Mean Girls. And I knew that the cast of the Broadway, the original Broadway cast, that they would have a lot of young people coming to them, telling them stories about their experiences. And I knew that that would be a tremendous amount of pressure on these young people who are actors and are amazingly talented, but don't know how to handle that. And so I worked with this, with the cast and gave them and consulted with them about how to deal with that problem and went through a training with them. And I went through the script and I went through all different kinds of things, giving advice about how to, to make it so that we could, what's it called? We could thread the needle between it being a great musical and sort of what was, you know, sort of the, the education of what was going on or the, mm-hmm. the ethics of what we were putting on stage. And I did this because I also had an agreement that we would do an educational um, component when the musical came out and that we would work with communities and that we would do, it'd be like, cause there would be all these families coming to the musical. And so we would have an opportunity to talk about anti-bullying stuff. And president Trump at the time was just ramping up the ugliness on immigrants and racism and all this. And it was just, we were just getting, it was getting uglier and uglier. And so this was an opportunity for people of all over the country from all different political stripes to come and get the sense of dignity and sense of, of being able to be a family moment of what, what, why are we here as a community? So we were going to do that. And I worked hard with my company, Cultures of Dignity, to do that with the people that were running the musical and nothing ever came of it. And um, looking back on it now, it was, you know, well, and I pretty much by the time the musical opened, I realized that I was just being used and I was being used because they wanted me quiet. And so as as closer and closer we got to the opening day of the uh, musical, they just everything just evaporated and disappeared. And there was really never any intention to do anything educational. Wow. That's a big betrayal. Yeah, it was, it was annoying. (laughs) It was really annoying. It was, it, it infuriated me. Right. And I just, it just absolutely, not to be facetious about it, but it was infuriating to me that our country had a leader who was doing his very, who was very effective at tearing us apart, thinking the worst of each other. And then we had an opportunity, which doesn't come around very often, where people from all over who believe all different kinds of things are going to come together in various, and you know, to come to this musical and feel good about it. And mothers and daughters and fathers and such, like people would come together and we just missed this incredible opportunity where on the others, where there was somebody who was very effective, a leader, a national leader who's doing his best to tear us apart. And there was an opportunity to offer much needed salve and respite. And you mentioned Tina Fey. Tina Fey was in the movie Me Girls. She wrote, also, the, she wrote the screenplay. She, she was, wrote mm-hmm. she wrote the screenplay. Yeah. Okay. And then also was involved in the musical. Yes. Yeah, so she was instrumental. It was it wouldn't have happened without her without leadership. Her. And she was on SNL and 30 Rock. And so she's she's someone that is in the business uh, quite a bit and 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 someone who has a platform of things that you and I both care a lot about. So I'm wondering how could this process have improved if Hollywood and Broadway really had a culture of dignity? 
<laughs> nice. I know. Naive question, no, but I want to no, ask it anyway. No, it's fine. You know, it's good to ask. Good, you know, questions are good, right? You know, I have lots of, I have a number of, I have a, a number of, well, and I have a particular hopeful really, question. Right. Hopeful question. I have some really close friends who are in that industry and I still work and I was talking to them about this all throughout. And there's a feeling in Hollywood that there's nothing you can do. And, yep. or for example, like with things on racism, which now Hollywood is very, very focused on, except now it's like people are terrified to say anything and ask any question for fear of getting in trouble. So Hollywood, in my experience, is one of super intense power dynamics and where you are terrified to say something to somebody that, you know, has more power than you do. And again, regardless of politics, the dignity is often not there in ways that we would really like it to be. And, and it just goes from like, well, what should I do? I just need to know what should I do? So, and it's really hard at having uncomfortable conversations. And that's what I do for a living is have uncomfortable conversations. I would love to do work in that field to bring more courageous discomfort, which is actually the name of my next book, but, mm. but courageous, but and really like courageous discomfort into that field to be able to say, cause it has so much power to obviously to shape culture that if we could, if people in that industry could feel more comfortable treating each other with dignity and not be so scared to say what they really feel, that would be a pretty, that would be a pretty powerful, wonderful thing. It'd be a seismic shift. It and would be. I'm curious then, you stayed quiet about this for a while. What was important for you to say, I'm not going to hold this close to the vest and no. I'm going to speak about this and, and how you chose to speak about it too was really beautiful. Well, yeah, thanks. I mean, I didn't talk about it for a long time because I didn't want people to say like, oh, this is a mean girls thing and Tina Fey is a mean girl, right? Like I just did not, uh, I didn't want, I, that's, I, that is literally like not treating her with dignity I know I can be angry about what happened. I can be incredibly disappointed. I can disrespect the way in which that happened and, you know, everything that happened to me. Like I, I don't have a lot. I don't, I don't respect when people don't treat people with dignity, whether it's to me or other people, but I didn't want it to be superficialized. Women's anger and women's conflicts are so easily minimized and superficialized that I didn't, I just didn't want to do it. I wasn't willing to do it. And so that I was on the receiving end of being treated poorly was, you know, unfortunate, but it wasn't in a way unfortunate enough for me to want to go public with it. And so that's the first thing. Second thing is, is it's scary. You go up against somebody, you say something about somebody who has a lot more power than you do and has an amazing image. And that is terrifying. And, you know, so, and then I just got to a point where I think the musical just made me so angry and it made me so upset to be used and manipulated the way I was. And also in a way, and also not just me, but that, that the opportunity was so, it was like, there was nothing, there was, there was no loss there. Nobody would, they wouldn't have had to, it just would have, I just couldn't understand why you wouldn't want to make the world a better place if you could. And I think that because of that, I just, I was, I just lost, I just wasn't going to not talk about it. And when I didn't seek it out, when I was asked by the person who interviewed me at NPR and she had this assumption and she, that she started off when she asked me if I would do the interview with her and it was called the art of power. And she said, I have this vision of you, <laughs> right? I think she said it in the podcast, riding on a horse in the countryside with like your millions and millions of dollars from Mean Girls. And I just laughed and I said, well, that is not at all what happened. And I just decided because I felt that she would tell my story fairly. She would let me talk about it in ways that would not devolve into Mean Girls or Mean Women. And I thought I could trust that. That's powerful. So for you, you kept silent about it partly because you didn't want your betrayal and how you were devalued. You did not want that to be fodder and play into cultural tropes and cliches that are so common, yet there was a tipping point. And so when you found someone who would tell your story in a way that honored your principles, your values, it just was a no-brainer, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she did. I think Arthi, the person who did the artifact, I think she did a great job. Good interview. Yeah. I will make sure to link it. Yeah, it was thanks. a really good interview. Thanks. So thanks for sharing that. Because I, I feel like a lot of times people stay silent, whether they're 
they're afraid of going up against leadership or they're in a position of leadership and don't want to stir up the masses. And especially these days where people, and I say this a lot in the show, where people critique for blood sport. Yeah. So thank you for for speaking to that a little bit more. And I just want to wrap up to and talk taking advantage of having you here. You know, I'm someone that is uh, is definitely grounded in hope, and I often call it a scrappy hope <laughs> these days. And I wonder a lot though about finding our ways towards a culture of dignity. Like, can we do it? <laughs> so, I'd love for you to share what leaders, what actions leaders can take today that foster cultures of dignity in their own circles of influence. Well. Number one is I think that you don't have discussions on social media with uh, with people about things that are difficult. I think you get on the phone and you talk to them. Um, Boom. Done. <laughs> I think that's the first one. I think second is that you look for, if you have leadership capacity and skills, you have to put them where they're most needed. And we've talked a lot about school boards. And I think that that would, can you imagine, I mean, we would, we would change the political culture of this country. If at the school board, if we had leaders who are capable of regulating themselves and other people who are participating and making sure that we had a principle based practice of having some school board councils meetings. So if you did that, if you contributed in some way to that, I think that would really change Things and let let make no mistake, because I know this from my own work, that what's happening at the school board level, I, I really do believe that people can disagree with me politically and have the right to be on a school board. <laughs> I really do believe that. Absolutely. But what we're talking about is the way in which we conduct ourselves. And what I'm seeing is people who are very angry who are going to be and are seeking out positions on school boards and school boards is the training ground for political positions. So if we want more screaming and yelling and people cowering or people just following somebody blindly because their emotions are whipped up, then don't do anything about this. If you have leadership capacity, then you really need to be going to the ground, the grassroots levels of where political discourse or lack of discourse is happening and contribute so that we have civil discourse and a principle-based practice of talking to each other. Ground zero, and especially, you know, with school boards dealing with kids and communities, it is, it is important. And honestly, Tip O'Neill, former Speaker of the House, all politics are local. So um, that's a great place. And again, if we're not running, we can go support people, we can get involved, we can stay aware. And we can also take care of ourselves and do do the work we can to stay as regulated as we can in those vulnerable places and those places of immense discomfort too, because that's, that's is hard work. And it's, it seems like it's getting harder and harder. <laughs> these days, even for those of us who do it all the time. Thank you, Rosalind. This is such a treat. And I know we only scratch on the surface of all of your knowledge, but thank you so much for your time today. It's been an honor to talk with you and get to know you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. When you choose to lead with dignity, you are choosing to respect the inerrant worth of all people, even if you disagree with them or they make you angry. This means doing the work to care for yourself and stay grounded in the presence of conflict, no matter how volatile. Now, staying grounded is not staying silent or taking it. And what I love about Rosalind's principle of dignity is that it is not remiss of boundaries or accountability. It is built into it. Tolerating bad behavior is never okay in a culture of dignity. Now, it may feel easier to rage and fire off a rant on social media or cut off anyone who disagrees, but the costs are too great to keep offloading pain this way. Taking some inspiration from Rosalind's powerful guiding principles, think about the following. What support do you need so you can be hard on ideas, but easier on people? How can you intentionally approach listening as a readiness to be changed by what you hear? And what biases and beliefs do you need to address so you can show up and lead from a posture that honors the inerrant value and dignity of all people? To stay engaged in healthy forms of conflict, it is essential we dig in and commit to the lifelong practice of healing, growing, and learning so we can keep showing up and speaking up without dehumanizing And this means doing the work to increase your capacity for vulnerability, which never, ever feels good, but it's always the bridge to the deeper connection and belonging we're all striving for. 
And it also means healing our own wounds. So when conflict arises, we can maintain dignity for ourselves and others in the face of attacks and hostility. Leading with dignity is the antidote to the dominating and power over behavior we're seeing in so many spaces right now. And lastly, this means befriending discomfort as the norm in all we do. Leading is hard. Leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher. It can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate the inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode show notes, and sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.